This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and uh, we're on episode 22. That's right, there's 21 other episodes. So if this is the first time you find yourself listening to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, do us both a favor, and uh, in your copious free time, Go back and take a listen to episodes 1 through 21. And, uh, and that doesn't mean that without it you won't be able to grasp the direction of today's show, episode 22, but it will undoubtedly help. What's today's show about? Well, uh, look, um, usually we say to ourselves the Pareto rule, you know, 80, the 80-20 rule. If... Uh, of your business comes from 20% of your customers, that that would be a normal situation. And so, you know, the the idea is to be aware of that and regulate your time usage along those lines. Or sometimes you'll say to yourself, you know, I can get this thing done fairly quickly and it'll be 80% as good as I really could do it. But if I spent a lot of more time, I could get it right to 100%. And, uh, and many times, it's entirely the correct thing to say, you know what, 80% is good enough. Or maybe, maybe it's going to be 90%, but it isn't necessarily worthwhile in every situation to go for 100% because the cost in time and money is so high that uh, it's, it's just a bad decision. And so, for instance, uh, if you go to your living room and measure the exact height with a good tape measure from floor to ceiling in one corner, um, and then you go to the diagonally opposite corner and measure it there, you might be easily a quarter inch out. In fact, it could be an inch out, to tell you the truth, in many in many non-custom-built homes, an inch wouldn't be crazy. <laughs> it really wouldn't. Now, it sounds a lot. And, gosh, there's a discrepancy of an inch in the height of my living room. But your living room is, what, 20, 25, 30 feet long? I don't know. And a uh, discrepancy of a quarter inch, half inch, even an inch. Uh, the question is, how much more would you have been willing to pay for your house? How much more in rent would you be willing to pay to get that right 100%? And the answer for most rational people is, you know, not not really. No, thank you. Not, not going to go there. I'm, I'm fine with that. And you'd be exactly right. Well, as you are listening right now, at this very moment, <clears throat> today, whatever today is, as long as it's, uh, you know, within a few years of 2015, uh, there are about 90,000 airplane flights in the skies over the United States. 
87,000 plus to be approximately accurate. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's as close as anything to 90,000 airplanes flying in the course of a day over the United States. Now, uh, many of them are Boeing, some of them are, uh, are uh, Airbus, some of them are Embraer, and, uh, and some of the other, uh, some of them are Beechcraft, King Airs, Twin Turboprops. But whatever they are, um, those manufacturers work at what? 80% of our airplanes are good enough? 90% of our airplanes are good enough? If they went for 99.9%, .9%, surely you'd agree that's pretty good. But if they went for 99.9% .9 is good enough, well, that would mean 0.1% of planes do not stay up. And that would mean between, uh, uh, what's that about? That would be between 80 and 90 airplanes coming down every day, right? And that simply isn't the case. When you're an airline and you buy a new jet from Boeing or from Airbus or from anyone, <clears throat> when you fly that away from the factory in your own brightly colored livery with your own airline's name on it, when you fly it away, you do not say to yourself, well, you know, there's a 99% chance this plane is going to work. No. You take off right away and fly it to your home base, utterly confident that it will work. It'll work just fine. You don't doubt that for a moment. And you'd be exactly right, because that is how they build airplanes. And uh, other than the occasional problem, uh, Detroit used to have sort of Monday problems. And I, I don't know if it was a, an urban myth or if it was for real, but my mechanic told me it was for real, that there was a period that um, it, if you bought a car that happened to have been assembled on a Monday morning, the likelihood was it was going to be a lemon because a lot of workers didn't show up after the weekend, but the assembly line had to run. And uh, that just meant that fewer people had to work more quickly to get the, the 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 parts in position and the assembly line keeps on moving and uh, there's just more opportunity for mistake which used to happen so uh, but ordinarily cars as well you know you don't find that one out of every hundred cars that comes off the assembly line is faulty needs to be scrapped or needs to be sent back that would be a 99% success rate it isn't good enough and so here you see that we really have mastered the idea of almost 100%. You can never say exactly 100%, but the, the numbers of failures are statistically insignificant. And this doesn't matter if you're talking about uh, airplanes or cameras or other electronic gear coming off the assembly line. I mean, do you think Apple scraps one out of, one out of every thousand phones? Right, that would be a 0.1% failure rate. No. By the time the, each test has been taken place at each point on the assembly line, by the time the phone comes off the assembly line, they're all good. They're all identical to one another. Now, this, this is all very new, by the way. You know, this isn't how it used to be. But uh, 
But here we are. That is the kind of accuracy that you get when you're building an airplane. How about ships? When you build ships. Now, I used to be a boat builder. That was something I did. And I used to build boats out of something called ferro-cement. I used to build boats in the 40 to 50 foot range, even a bit bigger than that. And uh, you would build it, uh, you'd build a, uh, a steel um, reinforcing bar and mesh armature. And then we would have, <clears throat> in one incredibly rushed day, uh, we would have the entire boat cemented. So the whole hull of the boat came out to be uh, about three quarters of an inch, no more than that, which, you know, is, is not a thick hull when you're talking about a 50-foot boat. And, uh, and I'll tell you something, every single boat I made floated and did its job. Every one. I didn't have a single failure. How's about um, ships that are built for the cruise line industry or, uh, or, or ships that are built for cargo or for the tanker trade? How many of them launch and then the, the boatyard says, oops, I guess that was the 1% that we, we don't succeed with as it uh, slides down the ways, fills with water and sinks to the bottom of the harbor? No, it never happens. When the Titanic happens, it was an external event, right? When that happened back in 19, was it 1912, I'm thinking, um, that it hit an iceberg. And uh, when the, uh, the cruise liner went aground near Italy a couple of years ago and caused such a mess, loss of life as well, uh, that wasn't the fault of the boat. The boat was fine. It, it was built perfectly. No. That was entirely the fault of the captain. And so uh, we find that with uh, airplanes and with boats, it's 100%. For all intents and purposes, it's 100% success ratio. Wouldn't you agree? How about buildings? What percentage of skyscrapers get built and then they don't stand? They fall and the architect says, oops, back to the drawing board. I guess that, that, that experiment didn't work. It doesn't happen, does it? It simply never happens. Buildings go up, and no matter how revolutionary the design, and uh, there really have been some incredibly audacious pieces of architecture that have been built lately um, in the Emirates states, in uh, Abu Dhabi, in Dubai, in, um, in, in some of those countries, as well as in London. If any of you have seen some of the extraordinary uh, buildings that are changing the London skyline, um, <clears throat> and not to mention in, in almost every major city in the United States, some very some of the stuff's revolutionary. It sort of it looks some of it looks gosh, I've never seen anything built quite like that. They all stand. Oh, uh, in China, amazing stuff. They all stand. They work. What percentage of buildings stand? Well, actually about 100%, really. They, they pretty much all do. So if you wanted to build an airplane, you could buy yourself a, an airplane kit, or you could buy yourself a set of plans and do what some wonderful friends of mine who, who live in Nevada are doing right now, and that is build an airplane in your basement. I wonder if they've thought about how to get it out. I'm sure they have. 
but uh, but if you know if your relatives who come for Thanksgiving say you know can we see your airplane you take them down to the basement and they see the wings are there the fuselage is ready in a crate in the corner sits a Lycoming engine ready to go or a Rotax engine whatever you're using and uh, your relatives at Thanksgiving say so do you think it'll fly the answer is no I don't think it'll fly I know it'll fly I'm following the directions it's absolutely reliable it's tech look we've been flying since 1903 okay so uh, it's it's well over a hundred years we had a lot of experiments we've had a lot of successes we've had failures we pretty much know how to build airplanes today and me I look I didn't design this plane I don't know enough about it but uh, I'm following the plans and the blueprints and the instructions of people who know a lot about it so yes and everyone else I know who's built an airplane to this kit or to this design uh, it flies and uh, and the FAA even gives licenses for people who build uh, light aircraft for themselves uh, they're even able to get them licensed to fly it's not a problem because it's so well proven we've been doing it for a long time boats you don't have to worry about boats will last boats will fly will float why again mankind has been building boats for hundreds of years uh, you can go to the library and there's a few shelves on naval architecture it's even I mean it's stuff that you can master if if that's what you want to do with your life you can become a naval architect and you will then be able to design boats every single one of which will succeed you won't have a 99% success ratio of course not the same is you want to be an architect you want to build tall buildings or how about uh, how about bridges you want to do bridges no problem or dams also no problem you know when a dam or a bridge fail it's big news and invariably uh, it's it's a while back it's it's something that was built a long time ago but anything that's built with today's standard of knowledge pretty much works as it should do you're not going for 99.9 percent on bridges and dams buildings and boats uh, airplanes no we're going for virtually a hundred percent and we get it why because we've had a lot of experience with these things which brings me to a question because I'm going to in the next segment I'm going to tell you of two things that we've been doing for a very long time and uh, which we do not seem to get quite that success ratio two things that human beings have been doing for longer than airplanes and buildings and and boats and bridges and dams and still we're not getting well frankly we're not even getting 90% success let alone a hundred percent what am I talking about I'll tell you about that in just a second but first I've got to uh, let you know that uh, in honor of Hanukkah and Christmas there is a 10% discount on anything at all on my store and that's good news for you and it's good news for me so uh, visit the store at you need a rabbi.com that's right you need a rabbi.com and uh, as soon as you find something there that uh, you'd like to have um, just enter the word bonus b-o-n-u-s in the uh, checkout and uh, away you go decent discount it's for real so give that a shot 
Uh, in a moment, I'll be back with uh, two things that human beings have been doing for long enough to have got it right, you'd think, and yet we don't. What are they? Back in a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Well, here we are back again on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveals how the world really works. And one of the ways the world really works is that uh, when you build boats and bridges, airplanes, buildings and dams, you get it right. They work. They stand. They do what they're supposed to do. They fly. They float. But I told you that there are two things that uh, we human beings have been doing for a long time, and yet we still do not have them down properly. What are these things? Well, there's two of them, marriage and business. Launching a marriage and launching a business have very low success rates. What is, what is the success rate? Well, the popular figure for, uh, for uh, marriage is 50%, meaning that there's a 50% failure rate. And in actuality, that is a little bit of a distortion, and I'll tell you why. What they do in arriving at that figure is they lump together all weddings, all marriages, first time, couples, second time, third time, fourth time, and yes, fifth time as well. They lump them all together, and, uh, and then they come up with the 50% success rate or 50% failure rate, same thing. And uh, it's not altogether accurate because the failure rate for subsequent marriages is far, far higher than the failure rate for first-time marriages. So... Um, if you're going to lump it all together, it pushes that average much higher to the 50% point. The in in reality, and and I will I will tell you these figures are they're hard to arrive at. They're hard to substantiate. But if I told you that 60% of marriages succeed, you'd look around. Look at your circle of acquaintances. Look at your family. Uh, you know, count up the divorces, and you know what? You'd probably say, "Yeah, that, that's that's about right." Maybe it's maybe it's better in your area. Maybe it's closer to seventy percent marriages that succeed. Maybe that for first-time marriages, the uh, the failure rate is uh, much much lower than fifty percent. More like thirty percent, thirty-five percent, somewhere there. But uh, bottom line is, my my point is that it's way below what we're getting with airplanes and boats and bridges and dams and buildings. Way, way, way worse than that. 
Why should it be? Mankind has been getting married for a longer time than we've been building airplanes. And if we can get airplanes right in 100 years, why can't we get marriages right in 100 years? How about businesses? Well, here, the failure rate for startup businesses, well, that is somewhere around about 50, 55%, I'm afraid. It's not, it's not good. It is very difficult. And we, uh, we even know some of the main reasons for the failure of businesses. So uh, people who, who want to try and give themselves better odds can actually um, try and, uh, and study up beforehand, uh, go through the checklist of the factors that play a major role in the failure of business today. Do that and, uh, and then try and improve your chances. You can. But do you still get to 100%? No, you still don't do that. There is a very high failure rate for marriages and businesses that are just launched. How do we explain that? If, after all, we've got uh, so much experience and we've got so much less experience with bridges and buildings and airplanes and so on, why is it that all our experience in those areas results in procedures that give us virtually 100% reliability, but uh, the experience, the years, the centuries of experience that we have in the areas of business and marriage, well, there it has not helped. There we're, we're nowhere near getting to our 100% success rate. What is the explanation? And while I'm talking, I'm sure you've been thinking about it, and you probably have some thoughts yourself already as to in what ways do business and marriage differ from bridges and buildings and so on and so forth. <clears throat> well, you know, I trained as an electrical engineer. And I actually, I don't know if I've ever told you the story. If, if I have, that would be terrible if I'm repeating myself on, on the podcast, but I don't, I don't believe so. But um, I'll, I'll tell it just briefly anyway, which is that I was working as an electrical engineer for a, uh, uh, for a big international electronics company called Philips, based out of Holland. And uh, I, I was on the design side for uh, communication equipment, um, uh, commercial and military communication equipment. And, you know, it was fairly interesting. But how did this happen? Well, it happened because when I was nine years old, I, I got a wonderful boy's book. Was, uh, I remember it was published in England. And it was all different things that boys could do. And my parents got it for me in the hope that I would do some of those things instead of some of the other very destructive and naughty things that uh, this boy uh, used to do. So there I am at nine years old going through this book, and it's uh, Build Yourself a Crystal Set. Now, some of you may remember, some of you won't, but... A crystal set is, uh, it, it's from the dinosaur days of radio. It's, it's, it goes back a long time. But one of the nice things about a, a crystal set is that, like, it's real, I mean, like, anybody can do it. And I remember saving up 
to, buy, to be able to buy the components. Um, I suppose today, um, you, what do you need? You need a, a, a toilet paper roll, you know, the piece of cardboard in the middle of the toilet paper. Uh, you need that. You need uh, uh, 100 feet of, of wire to coil it around and make a coil. You need a, a variable condenser. You could probably get that from nothing from a junk store um, or from an old radio set. You need a semiconductor diode. You know, that's not expensive. And you need a pair of headphones. So I went ahead and built my, uh, my crystal set. And um, I guess in England, radio stations uh, broadcast, like the BBC, broadcast much more powerfully than radio stations did in South Africa where I was growing up. And uh, it was very difficult. But my excitement when I actually pulled in a signal um, was so palpable that I can still recall the feeling today. Uh, that's that, that's what it was. I was terribly faint and terribly weak, but I remember I actually heard the announcer say, "This is the South African Broadcasting Corporation." Uh, the time is you know 9 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, and I, I heard that, and that was out of this contraption that I had built. Well, not only was I excited, but all my uh, par my parents and their friends and my relatives, oh, everybody was so excited at, at this. So. I went on from there, and I thought, okay, well, now I'm going to try and build a one-tube uh, super heterodyne. <laughs> These are old terminologies. Um, but uh, I was going to build a one-tube, and uh, it, we used to call it a valve. In America, we call it a tube. In England, it used to be called a valve, but it was a glass tube. looked a little bit like, an, like a sort of lengthened light bulb with a filament inside it that glowed. And it was an early amplification device. And uh, sure enough, I built her. And this time, it still wasn't powerful enough to drive a loudspeaker. It could still only work with earphones. But now, you could actually hear. You could hear any station really well. And then I went on to build a, a three and then a four-valve uh, radio set. And that one, by that stage, could really work on. Uh, we use a loudspeaker. And by this stage, everybody in, in my circle of acquaintances was convinced that I was some kind of engineering genius, which uh, was an impression I did nothing to uh, disturb. But deep down, I knew that all I did was follow directions. Uh, at that point, I, I was sort of beginning to get a vague comprehension of the difference between direct current and alternating current. <clears throat> but uh, there on into my early teens, I'm making all these electronic devices. And in those days, you know, no integrated circuits. There's no kits. I mean, you used to go and buy components and solder them together. I can still re remember the smell of solder uh, as components were being welded together. And everybody was quite persuaded that I was an engineering genius. And so I was persuaded to uh, very easily, I should say, to become an engineer. I mean, after all, I had this obvious talent for it, clearly. Well... Um, from the day I started working as an engineer, I was thoroughly miserable. Um, I hate being isolated from other people. And I was alone in my lab for most of the day. Um, there'd be design meetings, you know, maybe two or three times a day for 10 or 15 minutes each. And the rest of the time, I am alone in my, uh, in my cubicle putting together components, running them through test instruments. 
and that's how I spend my days. Absolutely miserable. Anyways, um, time went by, and not long. Only, I mean, only a couple of months, and I, I knew this was no good. It was, this was sucking the life out of me. I could not take it. Uh, all this nonsense about you're a natural-born engineer it was, was lunacy, absolute lunacy. I, I wasn't. I, all I did was I, I could follow directions, that's all. <laughs> that's all it was. I, I was. I was totally unsuited to life as an engineer in this fashion. Well, uh, it turned out a little time after that that um, I uh, met somebody who worked in another part of the company, and we uh, went off one day <clears throat> to have lunch together. And while we're having lunch, I'm asking him to tell me what he does. I mean, he had no trouble knowing what I did. And uh, it took me a while to understand what he did. The name of his position was a tech rep. Um, today, I would call it a salesman with technical expertise. It was his job to sell the pieces of equipment that I was making. That's, that was what he did. And he got out all day. He met with customers. He showed them how this worked. He showed them how this could help them. And on top of it, he got paid on a commission basis. So he made like three times what I was making or more. Well, as you can imagine, it didn't take long at all before I asked for a transfer. I wanted to become a tech rep. And, um, you know, people were astonished at first. At the company, they're a little bit surprised. I mean, after all, you have an engineering. Yeah, you did, but for it to be a tech rep, you don't have to have any of these qualifications. Um, never mind. I don't care about anything. Just please, please, all I ask is that uh, you move me into that area. I want to be in sales. And uh, sure enough, they did. And uh, I never looked back. There was uh, It was wonderful. I, I loved interacting with people. I loved solving problems for people. I love being paid on commission. It was all just terrific. Okay? All right, fine. Well, what has this got to do with marriage and starting a business? Well, you see, it is simply more interesting to connect with people than things. Why is that? Why is it more interesting to connect with people rather than things? Because people are unpredictable. Things are always predictable. And if they're not, there's something wrong. And then it's interesting while you resolve it, while you discover why this object isn't predictable. If an airplane doesn't run the way it should, if a bridge doesn't stand the way it should, if a car doesn't run the way it should, the diagnosis is interesting. But as soon as you succeed in repairing it, it goes back to being utterly predictable. But people are not at all predictable. That makes it very interesting to connect with people. Very interesting. But it also makes us, well, unpredictable. It makes it less reliable. You can no longer know with certainty what is going to happen when human beings do something as opposed to when objects do something. That's the big difference. And so uh, let's take a quick break. As soon as we come back, we'll take a look at marriage and business and see what is the reason exactly for the failure rate and can anything at all be done about it. All of that coming right up. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. 
Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Because it ain't about money and fame and power. It's about that little person inside of you that does not feel good enough. It's the same thing that drives these terrorists in Paris. It's the same thing that drives the Mizu protesters and President Obama and progressives and everywhere. Is not having confidence and faith. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. Back with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, episode 22. And uh, we're moving right along with the third segment of this show. And talking about, yes, uh, mechanical things like uh, boats and airplanes and buildings, uh, they all work 100% ratio, 100% rate, but uh, businesses and marriages, not so much. Why? Well, because they're not contingent on electronic components or bricks or concrete. <coughs> they're not contingent on mechanical things. Uh, mechanical things are only external factors when it comes to marriage or business. You see, almost the entire essence of a marriage is in the people. It's not in how much money they've got. It's not in what sort of house they live in. It's not in what sort of car they drive. The overwhelming majority of the success or failure of a marriage is contingent on not hardware, but software. Hello? Software, really? What are you talking about? Well, let's go back for the moment, shall we, to uh, mechanical things. Let's go back to computers. And um, when, um, when a company builds a computer, you know, whether it's uh, Toshiba or Dell or Lenovo, or Apple, they build a computer. What is their rate of success? When that computer is built, what are the chances that it'll work? Well, kind of 100%, but if it doesn't, is it because of a wrong piece of wiring on the motherboard? No, that almost never happens. If that computer doesn't work, it's going to be a software failure. How often do you find the Audi motor car company issuing a terrific new car, the Audi R8, and then it's got a little version one next to the name. And then a few months later, they say, okay, we got to update it. Here's version two. Uh, we had to iron out some kinks in the car. No, that never happens. Because that is a software function, not a hardware function. Things pretty much don't go wrong in the hardware. I mean, you know, eventually through old age, through uh, abuse, yeah, eventually if you drop your computer or you crash your Audi, yeah, you'll, you'll hurt the hardware eventually, sure. But it's on the software side that they constantly are issuing updates and corrections and this fixes that bug and this fixes this bug. Software... Well, software is kind of spiritual. It has no weight. It has no uh, uh, dimensions. You know, the, the software um, 
you know, it doesn't weigh so many ounces or pounds or, you know, you might speak of so many lines of code, but even that is not any accurate measure of what it is or what it does. Um, software is kind of spiritual. It's simply a pattern. It's an arrangement of ones and zeros that are so cunningly contrived so that they enable this thing to manipulate predictably other data, usually numbers or letters or words and so on and so forth, depending on what you're doing. <clears throat> but, um, but it's generally speaking the software. That is where it's tough to get it 100% right. And uh, even Apple, even Apple doesn't get it 100% right. They also issue updates and corrections and, and as they find one tiny, I mean, it's such a vast enterprise, a, a software operating system and its interaction with applications. This is so vast that it's, um, it, that it's amazing that it doesn't happen more, but it does happen quite a bit. Well, in a marriage, what makes this man and this woman who maybe a year ago had never met, they didn't know each other, and yet today they are now planning on locking themselves to one another and walking through life arm in arm. How does that happen? How do two complete strangers get to a point where they're totally confident in doing this? And the answer is, it's software. Now, in this context, I call it spiritual realities. What are some of these spiritual realities that make a marriage? <clears throat> well, I'll tell you, first of all, what it is not. It is not love. And I've spoken about this on an earlier podcast. Um, I've told you, and by the way, you know, if, if you haven't, if you haven't heard this podcast uh, at all, the, the one I'm talking about on love, and as you can tell, I'm just sort of looking for it right now. Right now. <clears throat> um, I believe it is um, that'll be 21, 20, 19. It's 18 or 19. <clears throat> Podcast number 18 or 19. Uh, it's either the one entitled, It's Easy to Start a Business and Pay Your Taxes Because All You Need Is Love. And uh, the next one is the only three things you need to know to live successfully. Um, those two podcasts. But no, uh, the one thing you we know is not the factor is love. Because uh, love isn't spiritual. Love between a man and a woman who have just met or have just started going out <clears throat> or are just getting engaged. At that stage of the relationship, what they think of as love is really a desire to um, elevate lust. In other words, they are feeling drawn to one another exactly the way God intended for the perpetuation of the species of human beings. Um, God set it up so that uh, men and women are attracted to one another. And every now and again, uh, the attraction is intense. And that's called, oh, we're in love. 
But in reality, all it is is that they really want to become one flesh, deeply and desperately. And the language of love is, is used to elevate that and to sort of escalate it into a loftier realm. And this is one of the reasons that uh, the language of love is very similar to the language of religion. You know, you, you're my angel. I adore you. you know, words like that. Um, <clears throat> uh, I, you know, I look up to you. Uh, all, there, there are so many themes that appear in God worship as they do in romance. Because that's really what's going on. And so when, uh, when I've asked couples who consult with me premaritally uh, about getting married, I, I usually say, well, you know, why? Why do you want to get married? What, what, and why do this person? And that usually opens up um, quite a conversation. And they know full well that if all they can say is, well, we're in love, we love each other, uh, they they got a, a really grumpy rabbi sitting in front of them because this grumpy rabbi does everything possible to discourage people from linking their lot to one another on the basis of the feelings they have for one another. Bad idea. All right, fine. So what's a better idea? Well, I'll tell you what a better idea is. It's hard to obtain. I'll, I'll acknowledge that. There's no question about it. It's not something that that's easy to find or easy to create. But since you asked, I'll tell you. Here's, here's what it is. Um, a shared world view, shared faith, shared religion, shared goals, shared understanding of children, do you want children? Why? How many? How do you plan to raise them? And money. When those things have been worked out, it makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and I, I'll explain what I mean by this. You see, would you imagine with me for a moment that you're driving a motorboat, a speedboat, that has on long tow ropes behind it two skiers, each with his own rope, two water skiers, each with their own rope. Now, <clears throat> let's imagine for the moment that um, these skiers are on skis that float. The reason I say that is because I want to postulate for a moment that the boat stops and the skiers stop moving, but they don't sink. Ordinarily, we depend on the force between the water and the moving skis to generate lift that keeps the skis up out of the water, or on top of the water, I should say. But I'm going to stipulate for the moment that these are floating skis, and now, with the boat stopped, our two skiers are about uh, 50 yards behind us, so let's uh, back up a little bit and come close. And when we're close enough, I say to them, look, you guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this rope I'm throwing you. Each of you take an end, 
and then I want you to pull yourselves to, towards one another as quickly as you can. I want you to pull the rope and use it to draw yourselves towards each other as quickly as you can. Well, they start and they pull arm over, uh, arm, over arm, and uh, it, it takes a few moments. It's not, it's not that easy. They've got to move themselves. You know, each one is a, an adult male with a, with a weight of between 100 and 200 pounds, and um, they've got to pull, and so they pull. And eventually, they are standing there together, and uh, I say, well done. You pulled yourself together. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to give you a pole. This is a, an electronic extendable pole. So when you're holding it in your hand, um, it's, you know, it's only a yard long, three feet long. But when you've each gripped an end of it and you press this little button on this rod, it starts expanding and expanding and expanding to 20 feet. And you're going to use this to, put, to move yourselves apart again. So they go ahead and they do that. And then I say, all right, now one of you keep the, uh, the rod, reduce it back to its three-foot length because you're going to need it later. Keep it in your hand. We're now going to start the motorboat, and I don't want you to resist coming together. I want you to just go the way the boat is pulling you. We start up, and we speed up, and they're skiing behind the boat, but something else is happening. What is it? It's a very serious point. Have you noticed that the skiers are moving closer and closer together until they really are together, and they, their elbows are banging into each other? How did that happen? Both pulled by one boat pulls them together. So now we give them the rod and we say to them, while we're moving along with the boat pushing you together, I want you guys to push each other apart. Push each other. Let's you know, take a broomstick, each hold an end of the broomstick as you're moving and push on it so to keep yourselves apart. You won't be surprised to hear that they both lack the strength to separate themselves doesn't work. What's going on? The power of the boat pulling them brings them together with more force than they can muster to keep themselves apart. Just think about that for a moment. When you and I are pulled by a common source, not only does it move us forward in the direction that this common source is pulling us, but just as importantly, it moves us together towards one another. Now, you know my general rule from ancient Jewish wisdom. It's a very important principle. And that is that uh, every physical reality has a spiritual parallel. Every spiritual parallel has a physical parallel, physical reality. Every spiritual reality has a physical parallel. So my point is that now that you've conducted this experiment with me, and you see that this speedboat, moving forwards, not only pulls the skiers towards the other end of the lake, but pulls them towards one another so strongly that they don't even have the capacity to force themselves apart. What is the metaphor for? Well, I'm sure you can see. Remember, I was telling you what makes a marriage work. Let me explain it exactly and precisely as soon as we come back in a moment. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. I'll have this argument with anyone all day long. I'm not saying you can't enjoy college sports and watch it and everything else. I'm talking about from an administrative point of view, what the universities focus on. 
sports are out of control. That's what I'm saying. And you see, I always digress into this because it bothers me almost as much as the giant pothole in front of my apartment years ago in New York that the city of New York refused to fill. Buck Sexton, weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. We're back with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, we are uh, moving along with episode 22. I've just been talking about uh, how it is that two skiers behind a, uh, behind a uh, speedboat uh, are being pulled together. Um, you'd see the same phenomenon uh, if two gliders are being launched with the, by a tow behind the same powered airplane, which, again, not, not uncommon in the world of gliding. And the only thing is that each glider has to apply rudder towards the outside as they're being towed up into the air by the tow plane to make sure that they aren't being pulled together because that would be the net effect. They'd be being pulled forward. They'd be getting their lift from their wings. But the side effect of being towed by one force, namely the tow airplane, would be to pull them together. Well, I think you can see the application for marriage, right? You've got exactly the same thing going on. And so that's why I say when, uh, when we talk about what holds a marriage together, the most important thing is to be towed by the same speedboat or the same airplane. And in the case of marriage, for, uh, for, for most people, that would turn out, I think, to be an attachment to God. That would be the faith. In other words, that is what is pulling them forward. That is uh, giving them this sort of great big pull. And not only is it moving them closer to God, but it's also pulling them closer towards one another. And that's a really important point in marriage. Because anything else is a socio-economic arrangement of convenience. That's like roommates. That's like people saying to each other, well, uh, you know, we both work in the same part of town. We both have similar tastes. Why don't we share a house? And uh, we'll go ahead and, uh, you know, one, one day I'll cook, one day you'll cook, third day we'll go out for, for dinner, whatever it is. But that's, that's not a marriage. They're, they're not focused. They're not being pulled together by the towboat. They're, they're not in any way experiencing <coughs> this uh, unification, this tendency to, to connect them because of this outside force. And to just remind you, as you may remember from our little uh, thought experiment, that um, the force with which they pull together is far higher than they could pull themselves together by themselves. So in other words, a man and a woman who are attracted to one another by virtue of themselves and their beings and their masculinity and femininity are not pulled together nearly as strongly as they are when they are both being pulled towards some greater destiny by a single force. That is pulling them together very, very strongly. And so this would be um, one of the key spiritual factors if you like, the software 
that keeps a marriage functioning, that keeps a marriage together, that makes a marriage work. <coughs> um, there's, there's more to it as well, obviously. Um, in the last show, we discussed the, the sexual role very strongly. That would be in episode 21. And that one was entitled, Honey, I'm Sorry I Have a Headache. And uh, I hope you've all heard that one as well. But, uh, but there again, when you get right down to it, you know, the appeal of sex is not that it feels good. Of course it feels good. But it feels good because it is connecting with the infinite of another human being. That's what it is. And so <clears throat> that connection, you know, again, I, I think everybody uh, is aware that particularly in the East, um, in Oriental countries, um, they have um, popularized a female inflatable doll. I should say more correctly, an inflatable doll meant to resemble a female in anatomical features. <clears throat> and uh, the idea, obviously, is that uh, men who uh, do not have a wife, or even a girlfriend or anything, uh, men who have no intimate relationship with a woman, are able to get hold of this doll and it is, in fact, a sort of sophisticated, uh, you'll pardon me, a masturbatory device is, is what it really is. <clears throat> and, uh, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, will this displace women or men? I mean, after all, it never tells you it has a headache. It never tells you it's not in the mood. Um, it never asks you to do the dishes. It never, I mean, you can see the appeal, right? Excepting... You and I both know that it will never, ever replace a woman for any man who has a choice. Because an object can never replace a human being. In, in the sense. I'm not, I'm not saying that um, a robot in a factory doesn't do a better job than a human line worker. But then to use a human being as an assembly worker on a line, on an assembly line, uh, is to grossly underuse the human being, which is exactly what uh, what um, Henry Ford knew he was doing when, in the early years of the 20th century, he notoriously said, why is it that when all I want to hire is a pair of hands, I've got to get the whole person along with the hands? See, he was really, at that point, just using people as robots. And so it made perfect sense that the auto industry was one of the first industries to start using robots because it's entirely appropriate. So I'm not saying that a machine can never replace a person or an object can never replace a person. <clears throat> I'm saying in areas of human intimacy, in the marriage area, a machine can never replace a human being. An object can never replace a human being. <clears throat> and so uh, uh, that sense of infinite connection that comes from getting to know in every way, biblically and uh, philologically, um, getting to know another human being is immensely powerful. Now, why do marriages fail at such a high rate? Well, it's very simple. People don't know the software, and they don't have the software. And the problem is that the emotion of falling in love 
is so powerful and so overwhelming and so utterly intoxicating that it's almost impossible to see or hear or feel anything else or to think about anything else. You know, it's the same as if you're uh, watching a, an Independence Day parade and there's a beautiful band that goes by, you know, a hundred people on brass and you've got ten trumpets and trombones and drummers and, and uh, flutes. And as it's going by, um, in, you know, in the middle of a while it's going by, uh, you don't hear your cell phone ringing. Why? Because your ear, which ordinarily hears cell phones just fine, is overwhelmed by the loudness and vitality and proximity of the band. And so softer signals are lost. Well, the same thing is true. The, the, the sense of falling in love is like being in front of a big brass band. And it totally overwhelms the softer signal. And the softer signal might say, you know what? We're intoxicated with each other. Uh, we're enchanted with each other. We, we, we love being with each other all along. <coughs> but, but there needs to be more as well. There needs to be a speedboat that's pulling us both towards the same destination. And at the same time, while doing that, is pulling us closer together. And so marriages fail at the rate they do, very simply, because people are overwhelmed by the brass band, they're overwhelmed by the intoxicating feeling of being in love, and are now unaware of anything else. And in fact, they love listening to the Beatles, who sing, all you need is love, because they really feel that. They feel nothing else is needed. And so, once again, you will have heard me use a phrase which is very important. I use the phrase, they feel. And there it is. My friends, if you think that marriage is about feelings and that it's a heart-centric enterprise, then I'm afraid you've got a 50-50 chance, maybe worse. Maybe 50-50 is the net average after all the people who got it right are also factored in. But when without that, well, the figures are probably worse. But if you think that marriage is all about feeling, that it's heart, not head, your chances are not good. Not good at all. And the problem is that uh, people are not educated this way whether it's at high school or whether it's at college or whether it's on mostly on entertainment on television, they're being told that heart is everything. What you feel is more important than anything else, <clears throat> even in the areas of morality. Haven't you heard people say, I don't need any external source to tell me what is right or wrong? I don't need a Bible to tell me about morality. I don't need a God to tell me about morality. No! I know it. I feel it inside of myself. Well, when you hear somebody say that, you can feel sorry for them because they're lost, completely lost. Morality has nothing to do with feelings. Compassion has to do with feelings. But morality cannot be based on compassion because if it is, 
then whoever you feel sorry for will be the one you side with. But maybe the one you're feeling sorry for brought on his own problems while hurting other people. And it's the other people who, on a moral framework, really do need your help. But you are looking at this lost, hopeless soul in front of you, and you're saying, I'm going to be a moral person. I'm going to extend my compassion to this individual. I have to do that. Answer is no. As soon as you think that morality is dependent on your heart and how you feel, I'm afraid we can kiss the whole system goodbye. And in no time at all, if you persuade enough people of your view, we are going to be living in an absolute hellhole. We are going to be living in an awful, hideous place. Because morality cannot work on how you feel. Morality is from the head, not the heart. Okay? That's really important. <clears throat> okay, so um, we, uh, we, we're looking at why marriages fail at the rate they do. And I think we've got something of an idea here, something we can, we can work with. And at the same time, we need to also see why businesses fail, don't we? We've got to look at that as well. And we're going to do that too. Uh, all of that we'll do coming right up in the next segment. <clears throat> For here and now, I wanted to remind you that one of the ways you can interact with me, one of the ways that you can pay for any benefits you get from this podcast, if you want to, um, is by securing a resource from my store. And to do that, uh, you go to rabbidaniellappin.com, right? R-A-B-B-I, rabbidaniellappin.com. And then you navigate over to the store on my website and go through it. And you'll find resources that uh, bring improvements to your financial life your faith life, uh, your social life and friendships, uh, your family life, children, spouse, and yes, perhaps most importantly, finance as well. <clears throat> and so depending on what you would like to work on, depending on where in your life at the moment you're at, you will choose accordingly. But one or more of those resources would be valuable to you. So getting it does yourself, you do you a favor, and obviously, because it keeps me going, it does me a favor. So hop along to rabbidaniellappin.com, take a look there, and see if there is anything that grabs your fancy. Use the, the code BONUS, B-O-N-U-S, at checkout, because during the Hanukkah Christmas season, uh, that is going to knock 10% off anything you get, which isn't bad. It's a fairly decent discount on something that's low-priced to begin with. So uh, go ahead, give that your best shot at rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, in just a moment, back with more on marriage and businesses, why they fail, what we can do about it. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. Because Turkey shot down Russia's plane, Russia responds and hostilities develop between Turkey and Russia. And Turkey calls on us to join with them in some kind of 
bellicose military actions against Russia. I think we ought to be prepared to say, gobble this? Are you out of your mind? No, no thanks. A war? No, I just think. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. And it is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show continuing. And thank you so much for being part of the show. Uh, We were talking about um, why it is that uh, marriage and business are so much more difficult to build uh, than bridges or houses or boats or anything else. And we spoke a little bit about uh, marriage. And here's an important thing. Look, uh, being married to yourself wouldn't be very much fun. What do I mean by that? Well, imagine for a moment if, you know, that there could really be a clone of you. They can't really, but uh, you imagine uh, a clone. Now, how much fun would it be telling jokes with your clone? I mean, no sooner would you start a joke than your clone would say, heard it, I know that one, how about this one? And then whatever he said, you'd say, yep, know that one too, we're clones. And uh, it, it just, it, it wouldn't do very much. How about brainstorming a business idea with your clone? Uh, equally futile, I'm sure you'd agree. Uh, because whatever you say, your clone would think was a good idea. And whatever your clone said, you'd think was a good idea. Uh, how about being married to your clone? Completely no good. Because it eliminates any possibility of growth. The whole idea is that there should be profound differences between you and your wife. You you, you wouldn't marry somebody who is exactly like you, uh, or you and your husband if if you're a woman. Uh, For this reason, a same-sex marriage is a bad idea, a really bad idea, because marriage thrives when we are forced to grow and accommodate and adapt to somebody completely different from ourselves. That's what makes marriage work. That's what creates a good environment for children to grow up in. I must tell you that um, one of the uh, favorite types of fan mail we get, and yes, yes, call me shallow, but I do read our fan mail. I really do. And uh, whether you are writing with respect to the the radio, to the uh, podcast, or whether you are writing... Uh, because you watch our television show on the TCT network. I really do read uh, all emails. And by the way, the uh, easiest and best way to send me an email is to go to our website at www.rabbidaniellappin.com. L-A-P like Papa, I-N like November. Uh, Rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, there's a contact us button, contact us tab. And if you click on that, uh, you'll be able to write a message, which I will absolutely see. And um, I actually respond to a fair number of them as well, you should know. Some of you probably already do. But um, I love reading those uh, those letters we get. And they're not all fan mail. Some of them are, are, uh, are, are critical, and that's fine as well. Um, don't enjoy them quite as much, but that's fine. Uh, then there is a certain type of email 
that we get from viewers of the television show. Now, <clears throat> the television show, <clears throat> pardon me, is um, is something that Susan and I, my wife and I, do together. And the 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 fan mail that I'm most fond of that we get there are are people who write. You know something? Now that I think about it, I actually might have my fingers on one of them right here. If if this is it, I'm going to tell it to you. Uh, um, um, okay. So what's uh, what had happened in in a few shows? In a few consecutive shows, um, I, Susan would talk about grandchildren, and I'd immediately jump in and say, look, please do not bring out grandchild pictures. Our audience have their own grandchildren, or they have somebody else. They really do not want to see pictures of, of ours. And, and then she'd pretend to, to be somewhat dismayed at being prevented from bringing out the grandchild pictures, and we did this uh, for several consecutive shows that, uh, you know, she'd talk, she'd say something about our grandchildren. I'd say, oh, no, here comes, this is just a setup. You're just getting ready to bring out the, 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 the photographs again. Our audience really, really does not want to see our pictures. Okay, so I knew, of course, that there'd be people who'd write in, and, and sure enough, we, we got quite a bunch of them. But that's not what I wanted to highlight. What I wanted to highlight was how this particular uh, lady, her name's Jane, how she finished off her letter. So let me read the letter to you. She starts off uh, saying, uh, Dear Rabbi and Susan, actually this is not so much a question. We would love to see pictures of your grandchildren and family. We have six grandchildren of our own. At my former place of work, we had an unofficial grandma's club, and we re regularly shared pictures and stories. It was lovely. So no, we would not be bored seeing your family pictures. It would be delightful. We watch you daily on our direct TV and have been greatly blessed with both the content of your program as well as seeing the playful and respectful way you treat one another. You, compl you compliment one another well. God bless, Jane. Okay, that, that was a real letter that uh, <clears throat> we just got today, as a matter of fact. And so I, I found and do find these kinds of letters um, very, very appealing. They're, uh, they're, they're heartwarming to me. Because, yes, uh, my wife and I could not have been more different. I mean, obviously, she's female, I'm male. Um, and she's very female, I'll tell you that. And uh, for, for, you know, with all the implications, both <laughs> um, easy and hard, um, then uh, she, she followed a very conventional path. She was an A student right the way through elementary school and middle school and high school. Um, we, when we were married, we used to run into teachers of hers that still used to speak to her fondly. Oh, we, we remember you and we miss you. Look, um, ladies and gentlemen, nothing could be further from the truth with respect to my schooling. Uh, my schooling was brutal uh, and... I'd say equally in terms of how I treated educators and how they treated me. Um, I regarded schooling as an unfortunate interruption of my education. Having to go to school uh, bothered me. I used to um, uh, spend quite a lot of time um, in truancy away from school. And my parents would sometimes get phone calls from the school saying, 
could you please send Daniel to school next week? We've got inspections, and it won't be good if uh, if he's away the whole week. Well, I've been away for the previous whole week, but so and uh, my parents just sort of they rolled with it. They uh, I don't know if they figured there was nothing much they could do about it, or if they decided that somehow or another my development. Um, required a uh, departure from convention. I'm not sure. At any rate, um, Susan uh, grew up <coughs> in, a, in a very normal uh, Jewish neighborhood in New York. A really exciting outing for her family was a trip on the Staten Island Ferry from uh, Manhattan over to Staten Island and then you know, walk around a bit and then come back. I mean, that was that was a big adventure. For me, um, it was very different. Um, first of all, our family trips were uh, out into the the veldt, into the jungle, where we would uh, animal watch. And even when I was a little kid, my parents were very very uh, enthusiastic about going to the Kruger National Park and many of the other game reserves where you stay in your car and you watch the animals running around wild. It was very cool. Um, in terms of my own adventures, um, yes. <laughs> I mean, there, there were many. Uh, there, there really were. I mean, things that were certainly inappropriate for a young, um, a young boy, 10, 12, and then teenage years. I mean, I... I camping, climbing, I mean, just off into the, the country um, with more enthusiasm than intelligence, I can tell you, and certainly uh, with, with, with considerable good luck because I came back. Anyway, the point I'm making is that we could not have been more different. And um, uh, we, we got married. Why did we get married? Well, uh, I mean, obviously, there was attraction on both our parts, no question about it, and we probably thought we were in love. But that, I think we, we, both, we both knew that that wasn't the issue. I mean, it was very nice. It was a bonus. It was lovely to be there. But that wasn't why we were getting married. Uh, we were getting married because we both felt the same pull of ministry. Um, we met when uh, I was the rabbi of the synagogue that I had started with my friend Michael Medved in Venice, California, just between Santa Monica and Marina del Rey near LAX. And uh, she, she visited the synagogue. And, uh, you know, by the time we, we started talking and, uh, and, and spent some time together, she had a pretty good idea of who I was because... Uh, I, um, I I gave constant lectures and sermons. I mean, I I spoke to the congregation probably about ten hours a week, maybe maybe a bit more, but that was about it. Um, certainly something uh, at in excess of five hundred hours a year. So people in the congregation had a pretty good idea of where I stood on everything, and she did too. And so uh, uh, we started spending time together. We started discussing these things and. Uh, and there it was, and, and what I think made it so magical for me, and still does, is that uh, she comes at it from a totally different perspective. It's not just that she's a woman and I'm a man, but uh, in addition to that, there are all the other different aspects. Okay, I think that's a good thing. And when uh, people write in and say, you know, we really like the interaction between you on the television show, 
I, I'm, I'm gratified by that because it's something she and I have worked on, probably me more than, than well, I, 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 I won't say that. We both worked on it. Um, to, be able to, to be able to cherish one another's differences and, uh, and to revel in how uh, different our instincts were about almost everything and how working together has, uh, has enlarged both of us. It's, it's made me see the world not only through my own eyes but through somebody else's and then after that through our children's eyes and uh, vice versa. All of this um, is why you want to marry somebody very different from you. I, I mean, different gender for sure and then different in other ways as well. And it's interesting that from a, a scientific and medical point of view, um, the pheromones, the, 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 the sort of natural smells that play a part in attraction and, um, and, uh, and, um, and also uh, appearances, sort of things that, that, that regulate attraction are actually strongest where people have the strongest genetic differences. So for instance, um, I am not attracted to my sister. Uh, you are probably, if you're a woman, you're not attracted to your brother. Uh, we're not, because we've been structured in such a way so as to relish and delight in difference. And the more difference there is, the more, uh, the more different we can be from one another, the better that is for marriage, and the better it turns out to also be for genetic purposes. In other words, uh, resistance to disease and so on and so forth, all of these things are enhanced by difference just as our spiritual souls are enhanced by there being big differences as well. So that's all um, a very important part of understanding marriage. But it's also a very important part of understanding business and money. Why is that? Well, when uh, the Bible tells that um, in God's image we were made, what it's really saying is, and this is only true for monotheistic believers, Bible believers, um, where the, the Bible um, speaks of, again, a monotheistic, a unique God, and this is throughout Scripture, uh, when, he, when it says that he made us in his image, what it means is each of us is also unique. And where did God choose to put the marks of our uniqueness? Think about that for just a moment, because in, a, in, a, in another moment, I will return for the final segment of today's show, and uh, we'll wrap that up. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. He goes downstairs and dishes out ice cream. Two bowls. And I already told him, I don't want any. No, you didn't tell me until after yes, I dished did. it out. No, you didn't. I don't want any. He proceeds to already dished it out. He brings up two bowls. I don't want any. I told you that. I'm sick oh. over this game. Please I help. can't eat ice cream. Please he ate a bowl. What am I supposed to do? Let it melt? Pat and Stu. Weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And here we are together in the final segment of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show for today. And uh, what we're looking at is uh, uniqueness of human beings. 
uniqueness of human beings and the differences between us uh, are what make marriage work. But more importantly, they are what make business work. And I say more importantly because it's absolutely indispensable for business, um, whereas with marriage, there, there are other possibilities. But, um, but in general, uh, the, the, the more difference spouses are from one another, the better it is. In business, it's absolutely inevitable because think for a moment what would happen if, um, let's imagine we were, let's say there was 5,000 of us in a town and we're all clones of each other, back to the clone idea. Would there be a marketplace? It's hard to see because we'd all want the same things, whereas a market is where some people want radishes and some people want corn and some people want money in exchange for their radishes and corn. But if we're all the same, it's kind of hard to see how any kind of exchange would work. If everybody were clones of one another, could eBay function? Of course not. eBay is a company, it's an organization, uh, which makes it possible for Tom, who doesn't want his roller skates, to get rid of them, and for Betty, who wants roller skates, to get roller skates, but Tom, who wants a harmonica, can get that instead. But if everybody was clones, we'd all want exactly the same thing. There wouldn't be any way to trade. And that's the main reason that uh, animals do not trade, of course. At no point does a dog say to another dog, look, here I got this really good bone from the butcher. Tell you what, I'll give it to you if in three weeks' time you give me two bones. That would be a trade where the, the, the time value is taken into account. No, dogs, dogs don't do that because any hungry dog wants a bone right now. He's not able to think in terms of any alternative. And so the very fact that we trade with one another, which is at the core of business, it's the very heart of business, the very fact that we trade with one another um, is evidence of our uniqueness. And where is our uniqueness marked? Very interesting. Uh, the first place our uniqueness is marked is our fingerprints. And, you know, while it's possible to uh, distinguish people by doing DNA analysis and by doing retinal scans and so on, um, some fairly sophisticated equipment is needed for all of that. But all, when it comes to bare eyes, just naked eye uh, observation and identification, Fingerprints are pretty much where it's at. Um, the other idea, of course, is face. Our faces are different, which is, again, really rather remarkable because we're like over 6 billion people on the planet, 6,000 million people. And, um, you know, you would have thought if you just – I know we're all accustomed to people all looking differently. But if you just think about the fact that the amount of variety is limited. You know, if somebody says, uh, how many faces could you draw? Or how many faces could we have? Given that we're ruling out most of the colors. You know, no purple faces, no maroon faces. Uh, but we're basically going uh, with a fairly simple palette of white, 
somewhat brown and black. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the palette there. And what's more, all the faces have to have two ears, a nose, a mouth, and it's got to be arranged in this way. Nose in the middle, two eyes above, symmetrically placed, mouth in the middle, underneath the nose. You don't have infinite variety. Well, given those constraints, how many possible faces would you think it's possible to come up with? And I don't think the answer is limitless. I don't even think the answer would be 6,000 million. And yet, every face is different. It is. Now, here's a little bit of a clue. And um, sad topic. Um, we shouldn't know of these things, but uh, people who die lose their expression, their facial expression. Their faces go slack, and they become a little harder to, to recognize because the, the face of the person you know and love, that face is the function of nervous tensions that keep the facial muscles in place in accordance with the soul and the heart and the brain of that person. But you could well imagine a circumstance where three or four people who all look different from one another then die and their faces all go slack. And now, now those three or four don't look all that different. And so we begin to understand that part of the uniqueness of the human face, that each human's face is distinctive and different and unique and special, is because each human face is the, the, the reflection of a unique soul. Something inside that's unique to each and every one of us then makes itself felt through the face. And so as a result of that, faces also then become unique and distinctive. But uh, this is really at the very heart of understanding how business works. It works by different people serving other people who are different from them. That's what happens. And so uh, very often when uh, people are trying to build a business, and remember that's what we're talking about, why 50% uh, of businesses that are launched fail, uh, people will tell you. One of the most challenging parts of building a business, you know, getting a job means you go out and get a job, but building a business means that you build an organization, you hire people, you might work out a deal, you might say, look, I can't actually pay you very much, but I can give you stock in the new company, shares in the new company we're building. Um, I can do this, I can do that. And little by little, you, you, you put together an organization. Well, when putting together an organization, guess what one of the biggest mistakes made is? And that is, people hire people they like. This is one of the reasons that uh, there's been enormous success in the market niche of human resource companies and recruiting companies, where essentially you tell a third party what you're looking for, they go find your hire, and they bring it to you. And they say, look, we know this is the right person, and if we're wrong, we'll supply another person until we get it right, but we think this is the right person. And the truth is that um, you are more likely to get the right person using a, uh, an outside recruiting firm than doing it yourself. Because when you do it yourself, um, two things happen. Number one, you interview, and in the process of interviewing, you very often form a bond with who? 
well, with people who kind of like you. And so unless you're very careful, it's the easiest thing in the world to create a business where your employees are all, I'm not going to say clones because a clone is impossible, but where all your employees are much too much alike to you. They shouldn't be. You do not want a situation in business where if you're the, the founder and you launch an idea, you don't really want everybody to chime in. Yeah, great idea. Good one. Go for it, boss. You got him. You nailed it. That's right. No, you don't want to do that. You want to have people who wrinkle up their brows and scratch their chins and, uh, and, and will say to you, uh, you know, I've got a concern. I, I think perhaps that um, there is a, a trap we might fall into in this approach. Uh, here's, the, here's the trap I'm thinking of. Here's how I think we could avoid it. You see, but if you just hire by yourself and fall into that trap of forgetting that success in both marriage and business comes from people who are different from one another. And when I say different from one another, by the way, Please know that I do not mean in terms of skin color, because I don't care about skin color. You can have people of any skin color you like. You can have people who are all one color. You can have people who are every different color of the, of the um, skin rainbow. That's irrelevant. That is a purely physical or materialistic distinction that has no relevance to business. No, not at all. Uh, when I speak about diversity, I'm speaking only about diversity of ideas because that's the only diversity there is. That's the only diversity that really counts. Diversity of skin color, that's only for animals. If we were all animals in a zoo and the zookeeper said, well, you know what, I'd like, um, uh, I'd like um, several different kinds of, of, of chimpanzees. I want ones with pink bottoms and I want one with brown bottoms. Or a farmer who says, I want several different kinds of cows. I want um, brown cows. I want black and white cows. Or I want horses. I want a Palomino horse. I want a black horse. When it comes to animals, talking about skin color makes sense. It is an insult to humanity to turn diversity into a discussion of skin color. No, not at all. Diversity for human beings means a diversity of opinion, diversity of view, diversity of outlook and a proven diversity of outlook. Not simply saying, well, his skin is white, so he must have a different approach from the rest of us. Maybe not. Maybe not. Not at all. And what's more, I might say, in my business, I want everybody to have the same set of values. Now, that's not threatening the diversity we're discussing. Values are very important, and uh, it's very difficult to establish meaningful and productive relationships with people if you don't share common values. And so skin color doesn't matter at all. Common values, vital, absolutely necessary. And then what's left? Ideas, creativity, outlook, opinion, all of that as different as you can possibly find. That's where you have an ideal makeup. So one of the reasons that uh, businesses fail at such a high rate is the problem of moving from the entrepreneur to an organization.
the problem of hiring, the problem of understanding what it is that you are really looking for in the people you are bringing aboard into your business. Very, very, ch very challenging, very difficult. Um, also, when uh, businesses fail, there, there are other more straightforward reasons and simpler reasons that you all know of. Uh, so that's why I'm not talking about, for instance, uh, running low on, on capital, uh, cash flow. These are all um, very, very big problems and problems that I, I speak about uh, in my books. And uh, you know where they are, right? In the store section of my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. But uh, there, at least, we, we do get the idea. When you're, when you're dealing with objects, when you're dealing with bridges or boats or buildings or or um, airplanes or cars or anything like that, uh, yes, they're very easy to do. You just have to follow directions. You have to follow the, the uh, established patterns of how these things work, put them together, and away you go. It's extremely unlikely uh, to have a problem. But anything that rests on human relationships is absolutely unpredictable. And its capacity for creativity is limitless precisely because of that. A man and a woman who are different from one another can produce, well, what is the result of the greatest act of creativity that any human being can do, which is to create another human being. But it's, a, it's also, those differences can also bring sadness, misery, and divorce if they're not understood and if they're not handled correctly within the framework, if you like, of the speedboat pulling them along on a trajectory, but also closer to one another. And uh, in business, exactly the same thing. Partnerships in business rest on the uh, partners being different from one another, but sharing the same set of values, being pulled by the same speedboat. That's what sharing the same set of values actually means. And uh, all of that coming together dramatically increases the chances of a successful building business and a successful building of, ma of a marriage. Uh, ordinarily, the way people go about this intuitively, uh, just using their hearts instead of their heads and following their feelings, uh, unfor <coughs> unfortunately, that, uh, the re that results in the very lamentable statistics of marriages and businesses. But uh, do it the right way. And you can confidently launch a marriage or confidently launch a, busi a business knowing that you have a far, far, far higher rate of success than the general public does. Um, as you can tell, uh, my voice going a little bit, but uh, thanks for sticking with me till now. Until next week, wishing you a week of good health and prosperity. I am your rabbi. God bless. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin.